from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Director of Foreign Policy, and it's a great pleasure to be joined today by Rosa Balfa, who's the Director of Carnegie Europe, based in Brussels, and by Andrea Kendall-Taylor, Senior Fellow and Director of the Transatlantic Security Programme at the Centre for a New American Security, a think tank in Washington, D.C., and um, also somebody who had me on her podcast a couple of years ago. So this is payback time. And we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's European Grand Tour, or, or rather about a part of it. Uh, Biden's first engagements in Europe are a bilateral visit to the UK, including meetings with Boris Johnson and with the Queen, and then the G7 summit in Cornwall. But the more interesting part of the programme at least, I guess, for foreign policy uh, wonks like us, comes after that, when Biden will be taking part in the first full-scale NATO summit since 2018, and I think the first proper EU-US summit since 2014, and then finally rounding off his trip with um, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin in Geneva, the first US-Russian bilateral summit since a memorable, if slightly horrifying, encounter between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. And Rosa, perhaps I'll start with you. And, and I might start by bracketing the NATO summit and the EU-US summit together, because they're both about engagements between the US and its European partners. And there's such a large overlap between the membership of the two organizations. Uh, you, you wrote a really interesting piece for Carnegie at the end of April, looking at whether Biden had succeeded in repairing trust with the EU after the damage that Trump had done. And so uh, the first question, given that there are continuing irritants over things like steel and aluminium tariffs, and in a NATO context over the sudden US decision to withdraw forces from Afghanistan, do you think that the Europeans do now trust the, the new administration? And, and what's the European side looking for out of Joe Biden's visit? What kind of a, a transatlantic relationship do you think is emerging out of the, the bad-tempered chaos that we saw in the four years of the Trump era? Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you for inviting me um, to this podcast, I'm delighted and I'm a, I'm a big fan of CER podcasts, so it's nice to be on it. It's a great honour for me. Um, I think progress has been made in repairing trust. I think the messages coming from the Biden administration have been very positive because they, have they are acknowledging uh, the need to listen to partners. And this is greatly appreciated in the EU. But at the same time, the EU really wants to see some action. Um, on several issues. And we know the agenda. Um, in fact, the EU has actually put forward a proactive agenda already back in December before Biden actually took office. And 
in this summit, I think they'd like to see some commitments and some deliverables, and they'd like to see the summit to really um, make decision, take concrete action, and therefore turn the positive words, the positive rhetoric into policies, into commitments um, on several issues. I think the issues are, you know, COVID, global reco economic recovery, health, global health, um, but also the trade irritants that you talked about, technology, um, uh, coordinating on, you know, establishing a dialogue on issues such as China, such as uh, Russia, on all these issues that you would like to see some, some concrete action. And so, you know, in, there's, there's been this rhetoric, there's been a lot of messaging, positive messaging, but in terms of action, what we're really seeing so far from the US is a prioritization of China, a policy designed to bring allies on board with respect to dealing with China in recognition that some differences will be acceptable and that full alignment is not required. But we haven't actually yet seen a Europe policy and we're still missing ambassadors, for instance, US ambassadors to NATO and US ambassadors to the to the EU or to EU member states. So I think there still is a little bit of hesitancy um, in embracing, in a full embrace with, with the Biden administration. There are another couple of things that I think come up, um, which is remarkable. The narrative from the Biden administration and all the officials, it's very disciplined. There's a worldview there of what the goals are and how to go about them. And uh, working with the allies is a prominent feature of that. And increasingly, and we saw that in Biden's uh, op-ed in the Washington Post uh, just recently, increasingly the world view is that we're moving, in, we've moved already into an era in which democracies need to come together to push back on the rise of authoritarianism. And so the rhetoric is quite, um, it's very compelling, it's, it's, it's visionary. And by contrast, the EU is proposing bilateral um, meetings on, uh, you know, trade issues, very pragmatic, very down to earth, very policy oriented. And I wonder whether there's a bit of a gap there on in terms of expectations between the two sides. Yeah, that's a really interesting, really interesting point. I mean, Andrea, you know, I'm guessing that um, from a US perspective, Biden probably thinks that his administration is already doing quite a lot. Um, you know, there has been actually quite a lot of contact with the EU and NATO. Biden welcomed the NATO Secretary General to Washington this week, and he took part in discussions with the European Council in March by video conference. And um, Secretary of State Blinken and Defence Secretary Austin have really been working hard on engaging with their European counterparts. But, um, you know, is, is the US looking to the, to the EU to, to make some moves as well? Um, uh, you know, it, it kind of felt to me as though the EU got off on the wrong foot with the administration over the uh, comprehensive agreement on investment with China. You know, just at the moment when the administration was coming into office, um, the EU announced that uh, that it had agreed this, this deal with China without any um, apparent consultation or, or forewarning. 
Um, and on the NATO front, um, you know, I, I get a slight sense from from talking to Americans that you know they're getting pretty frustrated by how slowly the Europeans are progressing towards the um, the two percent uh, of uh, GDP spent on defence, uh, considering that the target was agreed seven years ago. I mean, NATO's just reported that fewer than half of the allies have reached the target yet. So, you know, is is Biden also coming to to Europe with a kind of um, shopping list of concrete actions that he wants the Europeans to to take? Um, while they're waiting for him to to take some specific action rather than just, you know, kind of a, a warm embrace? Um, good question. And again, thanks for having me and just echoing uh, Rosa's sentiments about how great it is to be here. I think Rosa made a great point about kind of the different kind of levels that the United States and Europe might be operating on with the Biden administration coming in with some pretty sweeping grand statements about what it's looking to accomplish. I think Jake Sullivan, either in a tweet or other statement that he put out, kind of summarized the United States goals for these summits to rally the world's democracies. I mean, it's really um, kind of at that, you know, extremely ambitious sweeping level. Um, and then to Rosa's point, um, you know, with the with the summits with the EU, for example, it's a lot more pragmatic, practical, practical steps. So um, it does feel like there's a little bit of like ship sailing through the night. But I would say for the Biden administration's perspective, I do think that they are coming in looking to the European Union as a really important partner. Um, you'll hear White House officials talking about with the EU summit, you noted, Ian, it's the first one since 2014. And that really says something that the Europe is coming to the US-EU summit. I think there's an effort to put the European Union back, um, that it's not just NATO, but it's also the European Union that we need to be engaging. Um, and they talk about how they want to raise the level of ambition of the United States relationship with the EU. So I think that's where they're coming from. And I agree with you that it has been a little bit of a rocky start. I would The Biden administration understands, understood coming into office, how much damage had been done under the previous four years. And I don't think that they were naive and thinking that things would just snap back. I mean, they, they understood that it that there was um, repair and renewal and that was gonna be a process, but I would say it's probably been even more difficult than they had anticipated because they came in trying to address some of the low hanging fruit. It was rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, re-engaging Iran on the JCPOA, rejoining the UN Human Rights Council. There were all of these things I think that the Biden administration was looking to do to try to generate some of that momentum to get the US-Europe relationship back on track. And yet, as you said, you know, even before day one, there was the Chinese investment agreement. So, and, and I think where we are now is the administration is hearing a lot of concerns coming from Europe. You know, we hear quite frequently in the United States that um, Europeans are concerned that it's Biden that's the anomaly and not Trump. They, you hear over and over again, you know, what is it going to be either with our midterm elections or in four years is, is you know, is, is that Trump, is that kind of lunatic coming back? Is that the America that we have to deal with? Obviously concerns about the state of America's democracy with everything that's been happening here in the United States. There's been all of the kind of concerns about lack of U.S. consultation. I think you mentioned Afghanistan um, on the COVID um, intellectual property. So it's been, you know, 
concerns uh, there. And so I, I, I am honestly a little bit worried. I, I will say I flip-flop in between great optimism about things getting back on track because there are bright spots. So the European Union sanctions on China over human rights, the canceling of the investment agreement, Lithuania pulling out of the 17 plus one. So there's there are signs. And then I flip back to like thinking like, oh my goodness, you know, if we can't get it right at this time with President Biden in office, one of the great transatlanticists, if we can't work things out now and kind of hammer down or or nail in some progress, we're only going to be on a trajectory of more divergence. So I, I, I kind of, it, it does feel like an important time in the relationship. And if we can't do it now, then I, I, I worry about where, where we go from here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, a number of the themes that you mentioned there have to do with China. Um, and it does seem that this is you know, quite central in the administration's thinking and that uh, they are looking to both the EU and NATO to up their game when it comes to, to dealing with China. And you know, we've had uh, Wendy Sherman, the Deputy Secretary of State, leading high-level talks with the EU, the first uh, EU-US-China dialogue, and setting out you know, a really ambitious set of areas where they want to cooperate with Europeans on China. But I'm not sure that I yet know what it is in concrete terms that Biden most wants from his European allies. Uh, you know, is it more ships in the Indo-Pacific region? I mean, that's something that the UK is trying to, to do over the coming years. Um, is it more effort to lighten the burden on the US of defending Europe and, and Europe's neighborhood so that the US itself can focus more on the Indo-Pacific? Um, is it about that sort of uh, systemic resistance to Chinese authoritarianism? Or, or are they, is he coming here and basically saying, you know, please do all of the above and do them yesterday? So, you know, does he have a kind of concrete wish list um, on, on uh, cooperation with China that he's going to be presenting to the Europeans next week? I don't know if we're yet to the point of a concrete wish list. I think we're starting from a pretty general um, position in that I think the United States simply doesn't want Europe sitting on the fence. I mean, I know we've heard Tony Blinken telling Europeans that they don't have to pick a side, but I, 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 I mean, I almost think that's more semantic than anything else. I mean, I think genuinely the United States wants Europe to pick a side, even if we're not going to say it explicitly. Um, and, and then we'll move from there kind of on the wish list. I mean, in the NATO context, Obviously, the United States recognizes that Russia is number one priority for European allies and partners, but the kind of cost of, of remaining focused, or maybe not cost, but the trade-off is then a desire to see China move way up the priority list. And NATO is a really important forum, I think, for trying to hammer out that shared threat perception between the United States so that we build a, a more of a shared understanding of the challenges that China poses. And you can see that, I mean, obviously it'll be a centerpiece of the strategic concept that they're promising to deliver. Um, and also in a number of the issues that are on the agenda in the NATO context there, they have a huge focus this time on resilience. 
So looking at the importance of keeping um, our infrastructure safe, I mean, that's in large part because of, of China. Cyber is on the list, it's Russia, but that's also important with China. There's the big point about partnerships, which includes um, it, it, the Indo-Pacific allies and partners. So yes, Russia is still the centerpiece in the NATO context, but um, China is, the, the Biden administration is looking to NATO with a wish list of a number of issues where they want to see China play a more important role. And then I think it, it'll be really interesting to see where these discussions that Wendy Sherman was leading, where they go. I mean, obviously there's a number of trade and investment issues on the table. Um, there's the kind of democracy and human rights sets of issues. So I think we know kind of the broad contours of what's on ask, but now it's kind of working through the details of what that might look like and where Europe and the United States um, can, can move out together. But at this point, I think it's mostly trying to build the cohesion. The United States wants a cohesive kind of effort to, to take on China, um, but they're willing to do that through more practical measures. Um, I, 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 you know, it'll be interesting. Obviously, the Biden administration has adopted this democracy versus authoritarianism. You know, it'd be a question for Rosa too about how effective she thinks that will be with Europeans or is it better to talk to Europeans in these much more practical terms? Let's do export controls, let's do investment screening, let's do, I mean, there's a number of practical steps that we need to take to, to build resilience in counter China. So um, I, I wonder if the Biden administration is coming through this through too much of an ideological lens and, and they would be better talking in these more concrete practical terms. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll put that that question to Rosa. I mean, you know, how, how likely is it that Biden is going to be able to shift the Europeans off the fence? And is he going about it the, the right way? Or, in fact, is it better to approach this through a series of these kind of, you know, small, perhaps tech, technocratic almost um, steps, uh, rather than, you know, a big kind of civilizational uh, opposition between authoritarianism and, and democracy. I mean, you know, we, we've already seen that um, Hungary has been blocking EU criticism of China's human rights violations. Uh, you know, the Germans are clearly not ready to, to give up on their mercantilist approach to, um, uh, to China. So, you know, is, is Biden sort of taking this, this kind of high-level approach, is he setting himself up for a fall where he might find it better to, to kind of pick away at very specific issues where both the EU and the US have problems with China? Uh, yes, no, I, I, I do think my inclination is more in the pragmatic direction rather than in the big ideological direction. Uh, it's interesting because you know, the, the EU has had the bullying message from the from the US and now has the big, big picture, future of the globe, worldview message, and neither really works. And it, that, that is simply tied to the nature of the EU. I mean, some member states will be willing to uh, embrace uh, that kind of uh, rhetoric and that kind of narrative about world politics, but others will not. And the EU will always have to find some compromise between these different uh, positions. So, so I think it might be uh, smarter, shrewder with, you know, in light of the goal to work more on practical issues and on a step-by-step -step basis. 
bearing in mind that Europeans have shifted considerably with respect to China in the past two or three years. Um, this includes Germany, but also public perceptions of China's role. And I think there's, there's scope, you know, we saw Lithuania pulling out of the 17 plus one group. Italy has just recently blocked an, an investment um, in a strategic sector. So there are some things that are, that are moving um, and it would be good to encourage and support that rather than uh, chastise it because it's not big enough, I would say from a very practical point of view. But I think there's one argument that the US can make which will resonate with Europeans. And I, I think it's quite interesting that this administration is putting a lot of emphasis on multilateralism, which is unlike previous administrations of both, both democratic and uh, republican. And I think for Europeans, this is quite important. And I think what we're seeing um, in the evolution of the rise of authoritarianism is that authoritarian regimes feel increasingly emboldened in changing the rules of the game. And this is something that for the EU is hugely problematic. So we had Crimea and, you know, we could say it was a one off, uh, but it's, inc it's increasing over time. And, um, and there are more occasions of this. And how do you push back on this through the institutions, but also through alliances? And that's something I think Europeans ought to be interested in. And it would resonate a lot more with the European uh, views of the world, which are more focus on multilateralism and, and global governance. So uh, let's leave China for a, for a moment and these big sort of global issues and come back a bit closer to home and uh, regrettably to, uh, to one of the kind of traditional areas of transatlantic tension. I mean, it is uh, deja vu all over again, as I, I think a, an American baseball player once said, and that's um, the question of European defence cooperation and tension between the US and France. Um, and, and it seems to be coming up again because you have um, uh, the question raised repeatedly by France of Europe needing more strategic autonomy. And now that coming into conflict with the US wish to see NATO uh, having more common funding and spending more of it on developing defense technology and in, in encouraging the development of uh, defense technology. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, Rosa, whether you have any sense of um, concern in the EU that having just launched the European Defense Fund and starting to launch PESCO projects and so on, um, that, uh, you know, that actually the US is not being a helpful partner in these areas and um, that, you know, they, they're being spooked by the idea of European strategic autonomy rather than actually seeing this as a, a way of getting the Europeans to invest more in their own defence and the defence of their neighbourhood. Well, the concept itself of strategic autonomy actually spooks quite a few NATO, NATO and EU member states, um, such as those in Central Europe. I think the way in which the debate has been framed in, in sort of, you know, it's more strategic autonomy at the expense of the relationship with the US versus more US at the expense of strategic autonomy is really unhelpful. Um, and this is really not how 
how neither the EU uh, nor the US um, should think about it. Um, th there is a process ongoing within the EU, there's a strategic compass. Um, I see these as long-term goals um, that in the, in the short and maybe even medium term will be of limited um, impact in terms of NATO capability. But what I see more interesting, and that, that's perhaps a, something Euro a battle Europeans could pick up with respect to the US, is all that is being done in the hybrid field, in the cyber field, and the degree to which NATO-EU cooperation is developing. And I think that's perhaps one of the most interesting aspects. And take, you know, take the debate away from this 2% uh, argument, which has become a little bit toxic, and we keep on revisiting the same old arguments. There was an article, uh, there was a study that came out, I think, a few, just a few days ago um, in the US, um, arguing that it was a strategic error of the US not to support European military capability, because Europeans complain that the US is ambiguous, they want the EU to spend more, but then when the Europeans become more autonomous in how they spend it, <laughs> the Americans are not happy. So that's, and, and, and that's, so that's, that argument has been um, put forward. Um, in the US, but I think we really need to move out of traditional defense and think more broadly. And what's happening in, in the EU as far as strategic autonomy is concerned, I personally think the more interesting aspects are those about industrial strategy, the international role of the euro, investment screening, and, and these are going to build up Europe's capability to participate to global politics. Um, perhaps more so than traditional military ter uh, security and territorial defense. Mm. No, that's a that's a good point. I mean, of course, I mean, in a sense, the 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 debate about strategic aut autonomy, or at least this iteration of it, came out of fear that you couldn't rely on Trump to to defend yeah. Europe, and one of the reasons that people feared that was because of Trump's very unhealthy relationship with Putin. So perhaps, Andrea, we might turn now to, to Biden's summit with Putin, which I suspect will be a very different sort of beast from what we saw in, in Helsinki. Um, you spent a lot of your career as a Russia and Eurasia analyst, including as deputy national intelligence officer for that region. So you know the issues and the personalities very well. Um, Putin and Biden have have sparred before. Um, I think, in contrast to uh, to George W. Bush, um, Biden said that Putin had no soul, um, and uh, you know, not so many months ago, he um, he agreed with a journalist that Putin was a killer. Um, we know Putin is a man who can nurture a grudge. But do you think he's going to get past the personal stuff um, at, at this summit? And, you know, is there something um, more that, that this, this summit can, um, can deliver? Yeah, for Putin, um, I would say, you know, probably going into this, he has maybe two goals. And one is to kind of stand up and look tough um, uh, in his uh, interactions with President Biden. You know, it's really important to him, not just that he is sitting down on the world stage leader to leader, and obviously having this summit with Biden before Xi Jinping or kind of, you know, any of his kind of peers, although he would have just met with um, Erdogan. 
But so it's important for him that he's sitting down to have this meeting. Um, and he does need to look tough to not only just for his domestic audience, but kind of internationally, right? That's a really important thing. And so I would expect him to come out at least and be able to, 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 to talk tough and air Russian grievances, just as Biden will air grievances that the United States has. But I do think that there is a pragmatic undertone to what he's looking to accomplish. I, I mean, I genuinely think he also does not want to turn the temperature all the way up. And it was notable, you know, that we were picking up on elements of that after the Putin is a killer comment and he pulled his ambassador back. And there was a lot of outrage inside Russia in the Duma, other places about how dare the United States, you know, talk about Putin that way. And there were some reports that he still wanted to maintain at least a more pragmatic kind of position moving forward. And I think we'll see that in the summit too. Um, and so it's important. So I think it's those two things. One, it's important that he looks tough and, and keeping the US as an enemy is important for Putin domestically. That is one of his pillars of support this kind of you know, othering of the United States and showing how the United States keeps Russia down. But at the same time, he needs to be a stately leader. He is gonna wanna move into arms control and strategic stability discussions with the United States. That's also part of this great leader. It's the one area as the world's two nuclear superpowers that the two countries can sit down and have these discussions. So it will be, I think, prickly, but with, on from both sides. Um, but I think that there is this undertone of pragmatism that neither leader wants to ratchet it all the way up. And especially on the arms control and strategic stability front, both countries see that as in their interest moving forward. And so I think some of that prickliness will be tempered by, by pragmatism on both sides. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good point. And I think in a way, what one of the things that that underlines is that um, Europe's stake in Russia and the US's stake in Russia are, are significantly different. I mean, the economic relationship is much more important to, to Europe. Um, but the, the fact that you know, only Russia is capable of threatening the US with nuclear annihilation, you know, that concentrates minds in Washington, and I, and I understand that. I mean, if I can turn to you, Rosa, um, the European Council is going to be discussing Russia policy on uh, at its next meeting on the 24th or 25th of, of June. Um, and I mean, what we've seen from European responses to Biden's decision to waive US sanctions against companies and individuals involved in Nord Stream 2 is that the EU is, is as divided as ever over the approach that it ought to, to take to, to Russia. Um, and, you know, while I suspect that Germany will be delighted if the US can make some progress on arms control in the, the talks with Putin, um, the, the Central Europeans will be worried that Biden will give something away that damages their, their security. Um, so, I mean, I wonder, do you think that, that Europe is going to be able to find uh, a consensus on how to deal with Russia and a consensus that enables it to work with the US in dealing with Russia? Difficult question, very good question. I think the US expects something from Germany in return for the, Nord, for the, the white flag on Nord Stream. And um, that's something on Germany. It could be about China, but it could also be about Russia and about providing security guarantees to you know, Central European EU and NATO members. 
um, and Ukraine. So it, it, it's going to be, I think the, the country that's going to be in a difficult spot is actually going to be Germany, because I think that is where the US will have will ask for payback. And uh, so far, I've been thinking that the focus really is more on China and that even the US-Russia summit is also about China. It comes into the equation. It's not about China, but it comes into the equation. The US wants to differentiate the relationship between the US and Russia and the relationship with, with China. It wants to have separate paths on that front. Um, so I think pay, pay, payback time is for Germany. Now, with respect to Germany, uh, there are two things. First of all, there are gonna be elections soon. And that's, you know, there might be a new coalition and that new coalition might, you know, if the Greens are an important component of that new coalition, that might change things domestically um, with respect to China, with respect to um, Russia. Uh, but I don't think much is going to happen until then. And with respect to the EU policy towards Russia, ditto. I don't think much is going to happen until then. We've seen Macron has tried to, has done the tour of European capitals to see whether there's any other form of dialogue we can entertain with Russia. And really nobody's bought into the idea. Um, we've also seen that um, even Hungary, who you know repeatedly blocks uh, statements uh, uh, and unanimous positions in the Foreign Affairs Council um, with respect to China, with respect to human rights, with respect to a whole host of issues. But even on the sanctions package agreed after the annexation of Crimea in 2014, even that has you know even Hungary has has stayed its course. And I think few people in within the EU actually want to upset that balance, despite Navalny, despite you know, piling up uh, the military on Ukraine's border, they really don't want, they feel it's a delicate house of cards. And if they start taking out a couple of cards, it might crumble. Um, so I think for the short term, um, we're going to have to keep that equilibrium. So how Germany is going to pay back the US is, is really the big question. Well, I, I've, I'm going to put that to, to Andrea and just say, you know, do you have any thoughts on on exactly that uh, that point of um, whether you know there is either an explicit or an implicit quid pro quo for uh, the rather generous decision not to um, uh, not to sanction those involved in Nord Stream two. I think the decision not to or to to waive the sanctions at this time, um, you know, some people have said that was a concession to Russia, but that's entirely the wrong lens. And it really was a decision that was made in the transatlantic context with the recognition of just how important Germany will be, um, first and foremost on China, but on Russia and a whole other other you know host of issues that the United States cares about. So it really was the concession to Germany, just like Rosa just said. And I think the way that the administration has articulated it was basically kind of hitting the timeout button and looking to create some strategic space for dialogue. And I think then the expectation is that Germany comes to the United States and their delegation, I don't know if they're still here, but they were here this week um, to talk about what some sort of, you know, quote unquote, negotiated settlement could look like. And so I, it, I think um, from Washington's perspective, the ball is very much in Berlin's court. The administration took a lot of heat from that for that decision from Congress, and I don't think that they can kind of keep 
the, the pressure at bay for very much longer unless Germany steps up with something to deliver. And along the lines of what Rosa said, I think they are looking, you know, is it some sort of financial support for Ukraine? Is it investment in energy independence in Eastern Europe? Um, I think there's a number of kind of concessions or things that Berlin could put on the table that may be able to placate Congress in particular. So I, th I think that's kind of where that's headed. And again, I think if Berlin doesn't deliver, then it's gonna be kind of untenable for the administration not to, to, to turn that back and, and take, uh, you know, get rid of the waivers and have to put sanctions in place, which is something that this administration really wants to avoid. Yeah, well, that's, uh, let's hope indeed that we can avoid that. Um, I think at that point, we probably better wrap, wrap this conversation up. I think it's been very rich and very interesting. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, Biden is going to be covering even more ground. Uh, it does remind me of those sort of um, old jokes about uh, American tours to, uh, to Europe back in the 70s and 80s. You know, if it's Tuesday, it must be, um, you know, insert name of city. Um, uh, so... Um, uh, I, I don't envy him the um, the number of um, moves that he's going to have to make, the uh, number of new faces that he's going to encounter on the journey. Um, but I hope that uh, that through these next few days, the US and the Europeans can keep focusing on all the things that they have in common and um, not on the many small irritants. Uh, there is nothing between us like the enormous gulf in values that separates the democratic powers from the Chinese Communist Party state or Putin's kleptocracy. And with that, I'd really like to thank my two guests, Rosa Balfour and Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and um, say uh, thank you very much to, to all of our listeners for listening and um, look forward to speaking to you on the next CER podcast. Thanks Thank you very much, much Ian. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.